Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, this particular episode covers 1714 through 186. Now in chapter 16 and 17, we've just passed a watershed moment in the Gospel. And uh, it's there that it was first revealed to the disciples um, that Jesus is the Messiah, but also that this his position as the Messiah means that he will not only be the great king over the kingdom, but that this also involves suffering, rejection, and death. Now, all throughout Matthew, we have been focusing on the important themes of who Jesus is and who the disciples are. The events at Caesarea Philippi in chapter 16, with the first announcement of Jesus' rejection, uh, not only have earth-shattering consequences for Christology, how we understand Christ, but they also revolutionize the concept of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of this kind of Messiah. If Jesus is like a greater Elijah, uh, well then, in a sense, the disciples are like greater Elishas. And if Jesus is like a greater Moses gone up on the mountain to be transfigured by the glory of God in the cloud, like we talked about in our last episode, then the disciples are like those whom Moses took up on the mountain. They are like greater Aaron's, Nadab's, and Abihu's. See Exodus 24, verse 9, if you're interested. If Jesus is the great king, and he is, that means his followers also are royalty. Now, a kind of suffering royalty, but still royalty. They're kind of like those um, in 1 Samuel, like David, an anointed heir of the kingdom, still in exile in his own country. Now, this kind of ecclesiology has been introduced to us before in chapter 16, but here in 17 to 18, it gets fleshed out a little bit more. Uh, The text for this episode has three sections, the exorcism of a boy, Uh, the paying of the didrachma temple tax, and Jesus' interaction with children. So as I read this text, keep your ear open for what it says about what real greatness means for the disciples. Starting in Matthew 17, 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, then you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. 
When they came to Capernaum, the tax collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to them first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In verses 14 through 21, we have again another miracle. And again, it's an exorcism of a demon. Now, it should come as no surprise to the reader or to the listener that Jesus is, of course, able to do this miracle. But what does come as a surprise is that the disciples are not able to cast out this demon. Now, we read in chapter 10 that Jesus gave authority to his disciples to do miracles, including, quote, authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction, end quote. So, the problem here in chapter 17 with the disciples isn't that the boy has some kind of super high level of demon afflicting him uh, that's too great for the disciples. Nor is the problem that Jesus was absent. After all, the mission discourse has them go out, away from Jesus, to go do these miracles. But eventually we learn that the problem is their faith. The disciples are lumped in with the unbelieving generation. The text isn't quite clear here if Jesus' frustration, uh, his exclamation, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you, is meant as a rebuke to the boy's father. But we are specifically told that there is a problem with the disciples' faith. And yet, the way Matthew phrases it, the problem with the disciples is not technically that they have no faith. Jesus doesn't leave us with that as the final impression. Again, we have here the description of disciples, so common in Matthew as those who have little faith. In fact, their faith is so little that uh, hyperbolically, it's described as being even smaller than a mustard seed. It's like Jesus is wishing, I wish your faith was at least that big. So the idea is that these people are disciples, and as such, they have incredible potential to do great things. We even have an expression applied to them that, well, if Matthew uh, didn't say it, I would be tempted to say it would be inappropriate for a human being because it's so often used of God. Jesus says, nothing shall be impossible for you. So again, the disciples are great figures with incredible power, but accessing the great power of being a disciple will require faith. Disciples never outgrow the need for complete dependency on God. Regardless of what you or I or even the greatest Christians that have ever lived, regardless of what we have done in the past or what positions we may hold, the ability to fulfill our kingdom commission, to be God's agents in this world, requires that we depend on God, that we have faith. 
Now, as a side note, Texts like this one have caused uh, a decent amount of consternation in some people who think that uh, passages like this means that as long as we really believe, what we want to have happen will actually happen. But let me point out that the context of so many of these believe it and you will have it passages have to do with the mission of the disciples. We have whatever resources we need to accomplish God's work in this world if we trust him for it. Clearly, a wider view of the Gospel of Matthew as a whole should stop us from thinking that if we really believed hard enough, there would be no martyrs, say. John the Baptist dies. Jesus, of course, dies. He, in fact, prays that the cup would be taken from him. So the saying about nothing being impossible has the implied scope of doing what God has sent us to do. In fact, we have a very brief interlude in verses 22 to 23 in which we are again reminded that the Son of Man must be rejected. Even a person endowed with the Spirit to move mountains may have to go through incredible difficulties and defeat, may even end up being a martyr. Now the hymn writer put it well, Go labor on. Spend and be spent, thy joy to do the Father's will. It is the way the master went, should not the servant tread it still. The next little story similarly focuses on the greatness of being Jesus' disciple. Now, there was a two drachma tax for the temple at that time, which is about two days' wages. Uh, And this tax was for Jewish males aged 20 years old or over. And they, uh, uh, the Jewish males, were expected to pay. Recall that uh, the, Ju- the Jewish temple in Jerusalem is still, still being worked on at this point. It's only finished a few years before its tragic destruction. And this was a grand structure, and it required quite a bit of the people's money to finance it. Uh, but we know from later Jewish sources, like the Mishnah, um, that not all Jewish males were required to pay this tax. Uh, The priests, for example, seem to have been exempt. Now, this little story in Matthew revolves around this issue of if Jesus and his followers have to pay this tax or if they are exempt. Now, the logic is not uh, just that Jesus is exempt, but also that the disciples are. Now, pay attention to the reasoning here. Why? Well, it's because the king does not tax his own family. So the logic is because Jesus and the disciples are royalty, they don't need to pay this temple tax. So again, we are confronted with the idea of of the greatness of Jesus and by extension, the greatness of his followers. They are sons of the king. But this greatness, this royalty, doesn't mean that they should throw their weight around. Their exalted position should not be pressed to get themselves out of their adult responsibilities. This is an idea that will get further treatment later on in the New Testament. Though the church has a heavenly citizenship, heirs of the kingdom, rulers of the world to come, this doesn't mean that they can use this to their own advantage to avoid things like paying taxes. They must surrender their rights so as not to be a stumbling block for others. In fact, as you continue reading on in chapter 18, there's a lot that Jesus says about being a stumbling block. So, in the first story, uh, we learn that part of being great disciples requires faith. Here, the greatness of being a disciple entails us sacrificing the dignity of our status in a strategic way so as to not cause others to sin. 
Uh, this same concept is repeated again in chapter 18. Uh, what's important is not that they quote-unquote get what they deserve, but that they are mindful of the spiritual well-being of others. So they can't use their exalted status to avoid being adults. But then uh, in chapter 18 that uh, they also need to not just make sure they are fulfilling the responsibilities of adulthood, but in fact that they act like children. Uh, Let's take a closer look. We've been uh, seeing the lesson of what it means to have the great position of a disciple of the Messiah. It requires faith to unlock its incredible potential. It requires condescension to not cause offense. And this theme continues in 18, 1-4, where we learn that, ironically, greatness requires being little. It requires changing and becoming like a little child. Now, there have been several different explanations as to the metaphorical significance of being a child. What does it mean to be like a kid? But the comparison is not that children are innocent, or even that children are so much naturally trusting. Instead, the main idea is that they are, well, insignificant, the low man on the totem pole, so to speak. Now, this can be hard for a lot of us in the 21st century to grasp, because in our culture, in a lot of American culture at least, uh, we make our decisions based around our children. My wife and I, for example, often choose the restaurants we want to go to based on where our kids want to go. We plan our vacations around where our children want to go, and so on. But in this culture, to be a child is to be an insignificant person, to be the least. So Jesus' statement about being a child uh, in order to become great is of a piece with his statement that the last will be first. The willingness to be insignificant is a prerequisite for salvation, for entering the kingdom. Moreover, this same posture is necessary for becoming great in the kingdom. Becoming nothing and accepting the gift of salvation should not just be a one-time experience. It is the overall disposition of the Christian who really gets it. The Lord Jesus has acknowledged that Peter was right. Jesus is the great king, but even he must be like a little child. That is, he must go all the way down the social ladder to become nothing, to humble himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We live in a world with upside-down views of what it means to be really great, to be successful, to be someone important. But according to our text here, it means constantly trusting God. It means giving up our own privileges. It means becoming little. It means becoming like Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu.